there, folks. Welcome back to the EuropeLex podcast, our first regular episode of 2021. A very happy new year to you. I'm Ewan Healy, still in 2021. And with me, of course, is my very good friend, Gabriel Haddengren. Gabriel, how are you doing? Hi. Yeah, I'm still here. Um, well, all things considering, I think I'm doing just fine. I feel um, ashamed complaining, to be honest, uh, at this point. But yeah, um, all good. Just hanging out in my flat. <laughs> working away yes unable to leave 2021 is truly the successor to 2020 in that the year has begun with what can only be described as a real dumpster fire of news as you will see what well, we have all these headlines that come up it's quite a lot to talk about how much so much so much has happened in the first two weeks of this year uh, that it just doesn't bode well for the rest of the year really and i mean i guess it's the same same to last year it's like this absurd like dichotomy between all the chaos happening outside. And then at least for me personally, not much, you know, not much happening <laughs> in my own life. You know what I mean? It's like this weird thing of just sitting inside, not doing much except being on your laptop, but then the world is burning outside. You just don't get to see it with your own eyes. <laughs> yep, absolutely. I had some good news this week, though. My 95-year-old grandmother got vaccinated this week. So that's very exciting. Oh, congrats. So hopefully the end is in sight. Let's not all be let's not all be too depressing for this podcast. Let's save that for the news. Definitely. So um on that note, I guess just to talk through what what we have in store for you for our first um regular 2021 uh, episode. That's anything but regular. Um we're joined by our Portugal correspondent, Celso Gomez, ahead of the Portuguese presidential elections. And stay tuned till the end of the episode uh, for my interview with Emily Engermail, a Norwegian MP representing the Centre Party or Centre Partiet. Uh, we discuss the party's um, search in the polls currently and why it is so firmly opposed to um, Norway joining the EU. But first, let's um, go through um, our headlines. First of all, we welcome in the new year with a new presidency of the Council of the European Union. So in case you didn't know, every six months, the, the presidency rotates to a different EU member state. And for the next six months, the Republic of Portugal will preside over the council and under their motto, time to deliver, a fair, green and digital recovery, the southwestern European country will be succeeding Germany on the TRIO's programme until the beginning of the Slovenian presidency on the 1st of July. Some of its stated priorities uh, for the new program will be the transition to a more green and digital economic model, the, the reinforcing of the European pillar of social rights of the European Union, the creation of a European health union, the protection and consolidation of the rule of law, the commitment to multilateralism, and a geopolitically strategic reapproximation, that's a fancy set of words, to the UK, USA, Africa, and Latin America. However, these stated goals of an ambitious mandate could be affected and even overshadowed by the internal political scandal surrounding the Portuguese Ministry of Justice appointment of José Guerra for the European Public Prosecutor's Office, which could lead to the resignation of the National Justice Minister, Francisca van Dunham. For more Portugal news, of course, stay ahead for our rundown with Celso of what's coming up in the presidential election. And congratulations, Portugal, on taking over the council presidency. Indeed. Um, so now I'm going to talk about Liechtenstein, which is obviously a country um, we don't talk about a lot. And the people of Liechtenstein are asked to go to the polls on February 7th to elect a new Landtag, uh, which is um, the small landlocked country's national parliament. So far, Liechtenstein's party system has consisted of four parties, 
at the governing Liberal Conservative Progressive Citizens Party, or FBP, um, the Patriotic Union, the VU, and the right-wing populist, the Independents, DU, and finally, uh, a green alternative free list um, in opposition. Uh, during the current parliamentary term, however, uh, DU, so that's the, the right-wing populist uh, party, split, with Democrats for Liechtenstein becoming the fifth force in Liechtenstein's political landscape. So with the rather high 8% electoral threshold in place in the country, a key question for this election is whether DU or DPL can successfully return to the next parliament, um, or if that split just completely eradicated the force uh, from the institution. In 2016, the independents were still elected with 18.4% of the vote. Also, with the incumbent FBP Prime Minister, Adrian Hasler, not seeking re-election, uh, the Prime Minister race is essentially between um, the incumbent Deputy Prime Minister, Daniel Rich and uh, the FBP's Sabine Munauni, uh, who's Liechtenstein's current ambassador to Belgium uh, and the European Union. So that's obviously a fancy job. In the event of an FBP victory, Munauni could be the first female to serve as Liechtenstein's prime minister in a country that introduced universal suffrage as late as 1984. Um, both FBP and VU, based exclusively on competence, as they insist, um, nominated more female than male candidates for the future minister posts, uh, making a future majority female cabinet in Liechtenstein very likely. So they're trying to um, compensate <laughs> at this stage, uh, which is good. Uh, at the same time, a record number of 75 candidates are standing in total in these elections, um, which for um, such a small country is obviously a big deal. So yeah, stay tuned. Yes, absolutely. Another thing to stay tuned for is snap elections in Kosovo, where on the 14th of February, the country will go to the polls to re-elect a new parliament. This comes just 14 months after the previous elections. Uh, keen listeners of the podcast will remember. However, it's been quite the rocky period following the collapse of the centre-left Kurti government back in March. Abdullah Hoti of the centre-right LDK was elected as Prime Minister with 61 out of 120 MPs, so literally the bare minimum. But as the Constitutional Court ruled, its election was unconstitutional since one of the MPs that voted for him was previously convicted of fraud. This led to a snap election called by Vyosa Osmani, the country's acting president. And if you're curious to why Kosovo has an acting president and not simply a president, it's because the elected president, Hashim Thaci, a former leader of the Kosovo Liberation Army, resigned in November, podcasters will remember, after the confirmation of his indictment on war crimes and crimes against humanity by the Special Prosecutor's Office in The Hague. The election of the new president will, of course, be up to the parliament, um, but that will be elected after, obviously, the election in February, with Curti's LVV being the clear favourite for the these elections, even approaching 50% in some polls. They're an S&D affiliated party. As for the other parties, Conservative PDK is polling in second place, centre-right LDK is close behind, and Liberal AKR is running alone without a list, uh, as no coalition was able to be established by them. The centre-right AAK is polling comfortably above the 5% threshold, while centre-left NISMA is quite far below. In general, all parties that were in the previous government are polling significantly lower than they were showing in 2019. Meanwhile, the opposition LVV has skyrocketed. We should note that Kosovo is only recognised by 98 of the 193 UN member states. And we will, of course, be covering the election and any big developments on our social media. So keep an eye out for that. 
So moving on, the same day as the elections are taking place in Kosovo, we will also most likely be covering the all-important regional elections in Catalonia, an election that by the time you're listening to this might have been postponed. You know how it is these days um, with, um, with COVID, dates are shifting all the time. Um, the last elections uh, in Catalonia at the regional level um, were in December 2017, uh, right after the October 1st independence referendum and the failed vote for independence in Parliament. We'll all remember the, the violent scenes um, from that time. Seven pro-independence political leaders and two social activists remain in jail, where seven others live in exile in Brussels and Switzerland. And the Spanish justice has been unable to extradite them. So while the current Catalonian government um, has been in place longer um, than a lot of the governments preceding it, the relationship between the two coalition partners has been unstable and worsened over the last months, with uh, JXCAT uh, rebranded as Junts, wanting a faster path for independence and confronting uh, the Spanish state directly. And ERC, which is uh, a member of European Greens, um, are looking more through the lens of increasing domestic support, well over 50% before pushing for it. In the last election, all pro-independence parties totaled 47.6% of the votes, so very much a divided electorate still. Uh, the political divide between the two blocs is obviously very visible, and the lack of a negotiated solution, the imprisonment of political leaders, and the animosity um, of the pro-independence electorate towards pro-union parties have contributed uh, to what is a prolonged institutional stalemate in Catalonia. The only political options polling consistently above 60% in popularity uh, are a referendum uh, and an amnesty or presidential pardon uh, to the pro uh, independence politicians. So as a result of this, voters rarely change blocks, and the only way the pro-independence parties could achieve over 50% of the votes, or that pro-union parties would achieve a majority of seats, uh, is uh, turnout. As we know, when, when, when there's a lot of polarization, turnout becomes very important. Um, the electoral law, on the other hand, generally benefits pro-independence parties, as they gain the biggest proportion of seats in the rural provinces of uh, Girona and um, Leida. So if we take a look at the pro-union parties um, that will be competing, all points um, to many voters opting for um, CS in 2017, going uh, over to PSC, which is the regional branch of um, PSOE, so the, the center-left um, party in Spain. Uh, the Spanish Minister for Health, Salvador Ila, uh, who will be the PSC candidate, is a very popular figure in the ranks of CS and also ECP. Uh, so based on the latest polling in the current political situation, you can say that there are three main scenarios um, for the new government. The first scenario would be ERC and JXCAT or Junta um, ruling together, probably with the external support of CUP um, and other liberal and left-wing parties. Uh, you also have a sort of expanded um, coalition between PSC, ECP, JXCAT. Um, as I've said, PSC and JXCAT currently govern together in the regional government of Barcelona, uh, whereas ERC, PSC, and ECP, a lot of acronyms I know, uh, form two consecutive governments between 2003-2010. But given the current tensions across the blocks, this is very unlikely to, to fall into place. Um, another scenario is the PSC uh, links up with a number of pro-union parties. Um, so that could be ESPCS or Partido Popular, the, the center-right party, 
Um, however, no poll has these parties on their own um, having a majority without the external support of Vox. Uh, and even with them, um, it, it doesn't seem very likely they'll, um, they'll get the seats. Um, so as you will have heard from my summary there, very polarized, very complicated. So follow us for information about the, the, the fallout. Obviously, it's very important and interesting what happens in Catalonia. Uh, as a lot of uh, independence movements are looking at Catalonia and Spain, um, wink, wink um, to all of our Scottish listeners, for example, but not only. Um, so it's, uh, it's definitely been interesting to see how, how it develops and what the reactions are to, to the results. Moving on from that electoral news, now I'm going to go to Estonia, where there's been some political drama as reports have emerged from the state prosecutor's office um, that there has been suspicions of criminal involvement in the Porto Franco real estate case. The Porto Franco case, if you don't know, involves a, a 39 million euro loan out of a fund that was entirely meant for businesses hit by the coronavirus pandemic. That 39 million euro loan being granted to Credex, a state credit agency for real estate development near Tallinn. The state prosecutor alleges that a deal was made by Kirsty Kracht at the time, who was an advisor to the finance minister, Martin Helmer, who's a member of the uh, right-wing IKRE, and a businessman, Hilar Terra, that involved a favorable outcome for Terra. Kracht and Terra are suspected of money laundering and Kracht of influence peddling. The Centre Party and its now former Secretary General, Mihail Korb, are likewise suspected of influence peddling and the state prosecution alleging that in exchange for Centre Party supporting this deal, Terra would donate millions of euros to the Centre Party ahead of the local elections in the autumn. Some textbook, textbook fraud. Uh, following a Centre Party board meeting, which lasted uh, 14 to 15 hours, so we've all been in meetings like that, I think, um, the Prime Minister, Juri Ratas, um, emerged announcing his resignation early on Wednesday morning. Although he claimed that he was not party to the loan deals himself, that he himself was not under investigation, he decided to take political responsibility for the events. This came amid mounting pressure from the public, as well as from the leadership of his other coalition partner, uh, Isama, who is a member of the EPP. Whilst this means that the end to the tripartite coalition of Centre, Isama and Ekra, the coalition will continue as a caretaker government until a new coalition is formed. President Kersti Kaliolaid has announced that she is going to ask Kaya Kalas, the leader of the Reform Party, to form a new coalition as quickly as possible. By the time you listen to this, uh, meetings and government formation negotiations may well have taken place as the attention is to meet on Thursday the 14th. So I hope the news is good, Estonians. Yeah, and I mean, that caveat, I think we need to mention basically blanket for most of these things is everything's happening so quickly. Um, another um, government uh, crisis situation is unfolding in Italy. Estonia is far uh, from alone in experiencing um, this um, sort of situation. Um, so the Italian government, uh, led by the syncretic five-star movement and the center-left Democratic Party, uh, lost its majority in parliament um, after the third largest coalition partner, former Prime Minister Matteo Renzi's liberal Italia Viva party, uh, pulled out of the coalition in protest at Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte announcing his spending plans. Uh, the coalition partners may try to bring uh, Italia Viva back into the government with a renewed agreement and perhaps a reshuffled um, cabinet as well, in which Conte may find himself uh, replaced as prime minister. Um, as COVID-19 continues to spread in significant numbers across Italy, as in so many other places, there is a strong incentive to avoid holding any early elections. So the, the formation of anti-government is also uh, a likely possibility. 
um, Lorenzi has ruled out supporting any government that includes Lega. If you feel like you're having deja vu, it's probably because uh, because Italy is quite familiar with government changes. So uh, yeah, they're nothing if not consistent with uh, with these rotations and reshuffles and crises. Um, I mean, as a as an onlooker from abroad, it's um, it's very um, entertaining. Not sure how fun it is for um, for a lot of Italians. Uh, but moving on. Uh, well, snap elections, as I said, is not the first option at this stage for obvious reasons. Uh, it's worth mentioning that the latest polling sees right-wing Lega at first place with the Democratic Party uh, close behind. So I'm sure you'll most, most of you will know, but uh, Lega is um, the main right-wing party, formerly known as Lega Nord, um, right-wing populist party, I should say, and then the Democratic Party is the, uh, the main center-left party in Italy. Uh, the National Conservative Brothers of Italy and the Five Star Movement seem to be fighting for third place at the moment, with Brothers of Italy moving um, in an upward direction. For their part, Italia Viva sits at around 3% in the polls. Um, so, of course, a government crisis like this uh, will have an effect on the voting intention uh, and most likely party coalitions as well. Uh, but it seems like a center-right coalition uh, would be favorite in uh, in a potential snap election. So obviously that's not really in the interest of uh, the Democratic Party at the moment. So I guess, Ewan, you're going um, to complete the trifecta of, of government crises for us this, this time around. <laughs> People have really been busy in 2021. People have really said, new year, new me, and then just quit governments. Um, so I'm going to take you to the Netherlands, um, where... The Dutch governing coalition is experiencing difficulties as well. Just two months ahead of the next scheduled parliamentary election, the government could fall over a report which saw 20,000 families were wrongfully accused of child benefit fraud and orders to pay or repay large sums of money to the government. 11,000 of these families were subjected to second checks due to having a second nationality, which violates the constitutional ban in the Netherlands on discrimination. The opposing Groen Links party intends to table a vote of no confidence in the government, which has been backed by the right-wing party for freedom and the left-wing socialist party. In addition, 20 families have begun legal proceedings in the Supreme Court against cabinet ministers, including economic affairs minister Eric Vibus, who has specifically criticised in the report, and finance minister Menno Snell. Prime Minister Mark Rutte has refused calls to resign over the issue um, so close to an election, while Eric Vibus has said his government's focus should be on helping the affected families. The government controls exactly half of the seats in the lower house of the national parliament, with the parties which have backed the no confidence motion only comprising a third. So the numbers currently appear to be in the government's favour. However, it's a very thin margin and it is possible that the confidence vote could be very close, even a 75 to 75 tie. At the same time, the possibility of government MPs like uh, Peter Omzikst rebelling has been mooted, which makes the situation even more unpredictable. And again, it's something that you might know more about than when we're recording this. So again, I hope it's okay if you're Dutch. I mean, we are giggly. These are really serious situations and it's sort of baffling that it's all happening during just this humongous, awful public health crisis where there should be other things to to focus on and, and unite around. But um, anyway, um, continuing, um, in Latvia, uh, the country's prime minister, um, Kristianis Karins, uh, has sacked his health minister. On that note, Ilse Vinkele, 
um, citing her lack of a clear and understandable action plan for rolling out the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, Defense Minister um, Artis um, has been appointed acting health minister, a position he has stated on multiple occasions uh, he was previously unwilling to take. Um, so uh, probably not a great start. Uh, Latvia is currently in the midst of a severe second wave of the pandemic, as so many other uh, countries in Europe around the world, sadly. Um, it's far uh, exceeding the outbreak uh, of last um, March and April, uh, with uh, more than 52,000 cases and now 900 deaths um, in the country, which for reference just has a few million uh, inhabitants. Uh, for her part, Vinkle has emphasized a difference of opinion with Karens over the role of the health minister during a pandemic, uh, and has recently added that there was a personal dislike between the two of them from the very beginning of government. So a bit of a uh, debate there on whether it's due, due to inefficiency or, or personal differences. The Latvian coalition government is now in the process of picking a permanent successor as health minister. Once again, this is happening right when um, the job of that minister is so key. Um, so we hope it gets sorted quickly and that the vaccine rollout um, goes well, I guess is, is my only comment. Um, and now over to um, the CDU elections in Germany. Yes, absolutely. Going from one high-stakes political drama to another, as you know, as we've been talking about for some time now, as the election's been lasting near nearly a year, um, the centre-right German governing party, the CDU, barring any unforeseen crises and events, will have a new leader by the time you listen to this podcast. Uh, as we've mentioned in the previous episodes, the three potential successors of Angela Merkel are Armin Laschet, Friedrich Merz, and Nubit Rudgen. I'm just going to give you a quick rundown of each of the three of them, and then you can chop and change and cut out the bits that you don't care about when you know who the real winner is. <laughs> so we're really covering all bases here. Laschet uh, is the incumbent minister president of the state of North Rhine-Westphalia. He's a devout Catholic and known to hold very conservative views on social issues such as gay marriage. But he's framed his campaign as being a bridge-building one, uniting the centre-right and conservative streams in the CDU, similar to what Merkel has been successful most of the time in doing as the leader of the party. His deputy, Jens Spahn, is the country's health minister and has previously vied for the leadership position himself. Now, he is a married gay man with centrist views, which work well to balance Laschet's own conservative image in the party. Now, the second candidate in these elections is Friedrich Merz, who says he's a free market conservative representing the branch of the party that thinks CDU needs to win back voters currently repelled by Merkel's centrism and who are drifting to Alternative for Deutschland, the right-wing party. He started his career as an elected official by serving as an MEP between 1989 and 1994, when he then got elected to the Bundestag, and he has acted as the leader of the CDU-CSU group and leader of the opposition in the early 2000s. After an unsuccessful leadership bid, he moved to the private sector, only to reappear when the position of CDU leader was up for grabs again in 2017. He lost again, and that time to AKK, who has just stepped down. Now, if he wins, it would mark a clear shift in the profile party, and presumably would be affirming for him, who's really going for the third time lucky thing with running for the CDU leadership. 
And finally, there's Norbert Röttgen, who's a lifelong CDU politician currently acting as chair of the Bundestag's powerful Foreign Affairs Committee. He was the country's federal environment minister between 2009 and 2012, when he then chose to run for the premiership of North Rhine-Westphalia. In short, he performed so poorly in that election that Merkel sacked him. He's very much a middle-of-the-road candidate, supported by many of the elderly members of the CDU establishment. Well, Merz has been the favourite to win in most polls since the beginning. Support for Röttgen has been rising steadily in recent months, so it looks like it could be a closer race than some expected. And in more EU-level news, the European Parliament is soon expected to vote on a controversial investment agreement reached between China and the European Commission at the end of last year after seven years of negotiations. Um, the agreement will increase European market access in China and move towards a more even playing field <laughs> within the two economies. Uh, but it has come under fire for not sufficiently addressing human rights abuses in China. Uh, specifically, there are concerns about ratifying such a deal in the context of China's continued persecution uh, of the Uyghur minority in Xinjiang, where over one million people are thought to have been forcibly detained in concentration camps, and an intensification of the crackdown on pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong is also playing into this um, harsh criticism of entering this sort of trade deal with China. Um, right now. Um, the agreement has seen particular opposition from the center-left socialists and Democrats, the liberal Renew Europe and the Greens and European Free Alliance groups, who together make up just under half of the European Parliament, so almost a majority, but not, not quite. Um, the deal does contain provision for China to make efforts towards ratifying international conventions against forced labor, uh, but its critics argue this language is just too weak and does not go far enough in gaining binding commitments from China to improve its human rights policies. Um, in short, a lot of uh, MEPs simply do not believe that China uh, has any sort of motivations to uh, make any improvements um, if they enter this deal. Uh, so although the deal has gained more support from right-wing and sort of center-right lawmakers who generally view the existing provisions as adequate, uh, it will face significant hurdles in gaining majority support from MEPs uh, so it's definitely not been an easy ride to get this through. Uh, its adoption uh, would be a significant win um, for the now former German presidency of the council. As we said, they've um, led it for the past um, six months. And finally, before we go on to the two interviews that make up the rest of this podcast, we thank you for sitting through all of that news. There's a lot. Things have happened. Things have just been going on. And speaking of dumpster fires, let's go to the United States and speak briefly about what's been going on there. And which we actually, I would say we're bringing breaking news, but you'll know this. During the time that we've been recording, the United States House of Representatives has voted to impeach Donald Trump, which makes him the uh, first president in US history to be impeached by the House twice during their term in office. So the House voted 232 to 197 to impeach the president, which is every Democrat and 10 Republicans rebelling against the party. Now, obviously, this is due to what was quite obviously his inciting of uh, an armed attack on the United States' uh, National Parliament building, the US Capitol, um, and in footage which shocked, I'm sure, Democrats small d across the globe, uh, we saw uh, armed men and women taking control of a democratic institution because they didn't like an election result. We've seen footage like this before in countries all over the world, but I think if you'd told any of us um, maybe five or ten years ago that this was going to happen in the United States, it would be particularly shocking. I was just going to say, it was so such a 
I don't know, salient, strong moment. I think for so many people, you were just watching it um, with complete like disbelief. Like obviously, if you take a more long-term perspective and you look into all these groups and you know Trump's history with his rhetoric, and um, it's not like a complete you know complete shock. It shouldn't have been, but just seeing those images was so absurd, so scary. There were a couple of hours there when it just felt completely out of control. Uh, so I can't even imagine what it was like for both um, people present and and Americans seeing that. It would have been um, would have been awful. Um, and obviously there have been so many strong reactions from 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 all over the world and uh, most european leaders as well have have pitched in um i believe most of them um very harshly um against um trump's incitement of um of this um violence I would note there are certain uh, European leaders who decided that they didn't want to comment on the matter, such as President uh, Andrzej Duda um, and Viktor Orban, who both said that it wasn't their country's rights to uh, interfere or meddle in the internal matters of a foreign country. Um, they've both been uh, strong allies of uh, Donald Trump in recent years, and so uh, clearly didn't want to be drawn on the comments on that. One thing Orban did say uh, actually accused uh, the Hungarian opposition in his country of using the same violent tactics as uh, rioters in Washington, D.C. used, which is obviously a very bold claim, one that was also shared by uh, disputed Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko, who accused the opposition pro-democracy forces of being the same. Though obviously President Lukashenko doesn't realise that there is a difference between good and bad things. That's my hot take anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah, um, um, unbelievable. It's such a mix, um, mixed feelings. I mean, at least I, I had like watching it because it's the scary trend and scary force. And you saw a lot of people obviously being so violent and obviously going after, uh, well, members of Congress, but also, you know, the police and other people attending. But then at the same time, you have this, these sort of, very random crazy people there it's like a i guess it was sort of like a twitter feed like half like <laughs> actual fascist but then just like 50 percent just complete shit posting you know what i mean it's just it was surreal to watch and sad you, but do you know what i mean you and like you laughed at it because it's absurd and a lot of the people there you're sort of wondering how they got there and how they're thinking about it and then the other aspect of it is like the fear and the and the scariness of making that happen and actually going after the, the democratic institution itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there are real consequences to all of this, despite, you know, some of it seeming fairly amusing, but there are real consequences in, in the safety of our lawmakers and with uh, Republican lawmakers saying that they, they felt um, afraid to vote for um, the impeachment of Donald Trump because they feared for their lives. And I think fundamentally when when congressional leaders or um, political leaders feel uh, afraid to do things because they're afraid for their life, you know, when when you don't have a system of law and order, which which makes democratic lawmakers feel safe um, in standing up for what they believe in, there's a fundamental problem in your democracy. And I suppose I'm not the first one to, to say that there is a fundamental problem in US democracy. And that's pretty much obvious to anyone who's perhaps just read the Wikipedia page for the United States. Um, but I, I don't think this issue is going to go away. And 
Also, it's not isolated to the United States. Forces um, like those who stormed the capital exist in all of our countries in Europe. And I think we need to work hard to make sure that uh, the similar things don't uh, happen or, or similar types of things don't happen in Europe. Definitely. I mean, it's, um, I mean, it's obviously such a sad event. And um, I mean, those people and those views are still there. Uh, and for them to uh, sort of uh, de-radicalize or um, for, for the their traction to sort of um, decline isn't going to happen um, in a month just because um, Trump's no longer president. Um, so it'll be um, interesting and scary to see what, what happens next. And that's all the news that's happened in the last two weeks, which is quite a lot. Um, and so after all that, it looks like there's going to be a lot to talk about this year. So stick around um, for our previews of the 24th of January Portuguese elections, um, where centre-right Marcelo Rebelo de Souza, incumbent, is uh, up for re-election. And it's likely that he will win by a landslide. And so Celso is going to come along and explain why. EuropeLex is, of course, run by volunteers. We aren't funded by big donors. And everything we do, including this podcast, is only possible with the help of our supporters, just like you. And if we want to do more, which we do, we need your support. So we've started sharing exclusive discussions and special content and votes on what we should contain in our coming podcasts, all on our Patreon channel. Access all of it from as little as one euro a month and support the work of EuropeLex. So don't miss out on all that good content and support us on Patreon. Hi everyone, it's Gabriel here. Uh, so as I've mentioned, um, one of the first uh, national level electoral events uh, in Europe for 2021 is coming up. And um, that's of course uh, presidential elections in Portugal. And with me to discuss uh, what to expect and um, sort of the significance of these elections uh, is our lovely teammate Celso Gomez, who's dialing in from uh, New York, New Jersey, on the on the east coast of the US. Hi, Celso. Hi, Gabriel. Yeah, nice to be here. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, and I guess to sort of start off with the basics, what role does the president play in, um, in Portuguese politics? Uh, is there any sway and how much will it really matter uh, who, who wins these elections? Okay, so uh, Portugal has this, this semi-presidential system um, and you know you might be familiar with, with semi presidential systems in the case of France, where the president holds pretty much the the reins of power, and the prime minister is maybe not de jure but de facto subservient to the president. Uh, but in in the uh, the Portuguese system or the the modern Portuguese system, the president doesn't hold executive power. Uh, so I think the uh, the, the thing that's important to keep in mind in terms of powers of the president is that government is not accountable to the president, government is only accountable to parliament. Uh, so in terms of power, the president is, has the, the power to dissolve parliament, so that's the, uh, the biggest one. Uh, the president has the power slash task to call on to um, one of the parties on all the party coalitions to come and form government, 
even though they have no say over whether the, the government stands out or fails. Uh, and the present can veto um, law. So the, these are the, um, the three main uh, de jure powers and tasks of the president. But you know, when you look at things from, from the standpoint of, of de facto powers, the president does hold uh, a decent amount of sway over the direction of, um, of travel of government. So not by any, any sort of executive power, but by the soft power that he exerts over all the civil society in general. Cool. So yeah, yeah, that definitely makes sense. And I guess that's that's a lot of presidents in Europe uh, who are in that position. Uh, so going into more detail, then um, the incumbent president of of Portugal is Marcelo uh, Rebelo de Sousa. Um, he is currently, if you're looking at polls, sort of way ahead at 60, 70 percent. Um, why is he this popular? Is, is there any specific uh, reason for that? Um, and is there any chance in your view um, for any other outcome than, than him just blowing it out the water? It's, it's, it's actually kind of funny to see that everyone uh, in this election, so you see Gerald Souza, you see the other candidates, you see the, the prime minister, and going to grand lengths to, uh, to state that this election is not a coronation. So that, that it isn't a done deal. That's in fact that, that there's something to play for still. But, you know, as, as you mentioned, Gabriel uh, Sosa has been polling consistently in the 60s. Uh, and um, he holds a, a 40 point gap over the next uh, candidate who was in most polls at a bomb. So there's the idea that this is anything other than a coronation is, is fantasy. So, I don't think there's any question that uh, Marcel Rebelsoza will win the election, and Ozar will win the election on the uh, the first round. That there won't even be um, there won't even be a runoff. Uh, it's true that polls in Portugal tend to tighten a bit um, over the last week, uh, but still, there's, it, it's not conceivable, or at least not expected, that the uh, the ten point um, hold has over twenty percent will will disappear. Uh, as to why Rebel Sosa is so unbelievably popular, it's interesting to note that he wasn't always this popular. So he's a longtime political operator. He has, for 30 something years, um, been a member of PSD, so one of the, uh, the center right party in the EVP family in the, U the European Parliament. For about five years, he was um, a PSD leader, but he, he never really made a splash. So he, he couldn't really get close to. Uh, to becoming prime minister. So he left frontline politics and he, he started this, this new career as a political commentator. So he, he became a, a household name in that he cultivated this, this kind, knowledgeable, apolitical, statesman-like image. And that, that's really stuck. So how tied do you think he is to uh, PSD or does it matter at all that that's the party he represents at this point or is he very much acting as a neutral um, president, although his background is to the centre-right. See, th this, is, this is an interesting peculiarity of, of the, uh, the election. He, he, he formally suspended his membership of PSD when he became president, so back in 2016, uh, and he, he had, he's, he's incredibly clever and he's very good at 
at presenting himself as apolitical. And this, this, this came out well, really strongly in, the, uh, in a debate uh, last week where he was with all the candidates, where he had you know, fairly decent blows uh, from the left, fairly decent blows from the right. And he, he just deflected all of them um, by, by merely stating that you know, he was being attacked by the left, by the right, and if he was, uh, if was, if he was being attacked by both uh, sides of the political spectrum, that, you know, th that really meant that he was an apolitical president whose, whose um, interest was you know, a common good. So he, he cultivates that image. He's portrayed like that. But when you look at the decisions that he makes in the sense of the laws that he vetoes, in the sense of who he calls, um, who he gives audiences to, you can tell that he's a center-right um, center right, uh, president or a center-right figure. There's, there's this tension between party politics uh, and individual personality or persona in the, uh, in the presidential election in the sense that there are no party political candidates. Even though they might be supported by particular political forces, all the candidates are, are presenting themselves as, as citizens, not as a representative of X party. Um, but yeah, these, these political affiliations don't really go away. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. But interesting that they're not officially tied to the parties then, uh, even though obviously most Portuguese people, I assume, will know <laughs> where their ties are. I thought really quickly just um, to finish off, so even if everything points to D'Souza uh, getting you know, a very comfortable majority of the votes on the 24th of January, obviously whenever there's an election campaign, uh, it is a chance for candidates to profile themselves um, and enter the debate and maybe even influence national politics sort of indirectly through a presidential campaign. So I just thought, what other candidates um, would you say have profiled themselves? Have, have there been sort of any standout opposition to, to D'Souza? I know you mentioned Ana Gomez, um, who's, I guess, the main left wing opponent and then I'm sure a lot of our listeners also will know about the right-wing far-right Chega who's got quite a lot of attention internationally as well recently what, what would you say are, are sort of the standout candidates other than Sousa? Uh, it, it would be exactly those two yes um, so Anna Gomes the unofficial slash contrarian candidate from uh, from PS or the party, the centre-left party, which is in power. Anna Gomes used to be a, a member of the European Parliament and she's a career diplomat and she's built this platform as a an anti-corruption campaigner, really. Uh, and her, her um, candidacy is, is, is actually more of a response to Ander Ventura's, Ander Ventura's candidacy, whom you also mentioned, than a, than a, a candidacy in its own right, really. Uh, so Ana Gomes is, is basically trying to quash Andre Ventura, who, as you mentioned, is, is the candidate of Sugar. Andre Ventura is, is quite strongly, and it's apparent in every time he speaks, he has no, he or anyone else has no, um, has no real chance of, of becoming president, you know, when they're facing opposition from Raul Sosa. So what he's, he's doing here is, is preparing for a, for a longer campaign in the local elections that will be coming in um, September, October, I believe, uh, of this year. And, you know, just, just building the profile of Chega uh, because 
you hear the man, he, he keeps repeating the same things over and over and over again. So he's, he's very on point on, on messaging and he's, yeah, he's, he's using this, the election as a platform for, for increased notoriety. So in a sense, what might be more interesting to follow uh, on the 24th isn't really the Sousa's uh, performance, but who comes in second place. That's correct, yeah. Um, so that's a tip for, for all of our listeners. Thank you so much for coming on, just to give an update on this, one of our first um, electoral uh, events that we'll be covering um, this year. And um, once we have results, we'll obviously be publishing them across all our channels and um, on our next podcast, we'll be able to give an update as well. So yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast and want to help us grow, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform it is you're listening to us on. And of course, tell your friends, your fellow political nerds all about us. That would mean the absolute world. We love making this podcast and we love it when you guys love it. So if you've got an idea for a segment, thoughts on a topic that we should be covering, or even if you just want to say hi to us, drop us an email, podcast at europolex.eu. Hi everyone, so one of the most interesting upward swings we've seen in our polling averages over the past few months is that of the Norwegian Center Party. Uh, so it's an agrarian party traditionally and it's been around for 100 years, it was actually its uh, 100th anniversary. Uh, and it's since then, you know, supported a number of the country's governments from uh, from right to left, uh, usually ending up, you know, third, fourth position in elections. So it's sort of a mainstay uh, but never really a dominant force in the country's politics. It's best known for its very strong anti-EU stance, and um, its peak electorally was in 1993, uh, which was in the early 90s, a year before the most recent referendum in the country on joining the EU, which evidently went in the centre party's direction um, at that time. Uh, it is currently in opposition to Erna Solberg's centre-right cabinet, and in recent polls, it's eyeing the top spot in the country's elections next year, which would be an historic first. So with me to discuss the Centre Party and what's going on in Norway currently, I'm very happy to say is one of the party's parliamentarians, uh, Emily Engermel, um, who's also a member of PACE, I should say, or the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe. Um, good morning, Emily. Good morning. Uh, thank you so much for, um, for being with us. I just thought uh, to start, if you could just explain um, sort of briefly in your view, the Centre Party's ideology and, and, and what you stand for. What is it that you're known for in, in Norway? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, so, like you said, we uh, were founded with a very uh, strong connection to the uh, uh, agricultural sector. Uh, it was actually, originally our name was the Farmers Party. That's actually uh, uh, something that I think is an important important to to remember because our foundation was strongly rooted all over the country because Norway is a like it's a uh, country founded on the agricultural sector. Uh, it's a it's a vast country with which is densely populated, uh, but we have uh, uh, farmland and uh, forestry like all over the country, and uh, so we have uh, always been known as like a locally anchored. Um, party. We've always had like uh, a lot of uh, uh, people engaged all over the country uh, for us, whereas other uh, parties may have their like a main uh, uh, voters in the cities. So we've always been known as like a countryside party. 
and uh, our ideology is uh, is founded on a strong people's democracy, uh, where we mean that um, decisions should be made as close to people as possible. Yeah, uh, I think that the word centralization is very uh, important uh, in our ideology because we we have uh, taken a very strong position against the centralization of of power, uh, of uh, money, and um, of uh, services uh, over the last uh, years. Um, and this is because I think the whole like thinking in society around the year two thousand and I mean, like there for a long period of time now, there has been like a, a, um, a thinking that we need to centralize everything. We need bigger units. We need to make like better services and more profession, professional uh, services. Um, we need, I mean, uh, the, the legislation and the uh, legal systems are, are more and more advanced. So, so there is also an idea that decision makers need to be like in central and big bodies uh, to... Um, to uh, to be able to make good decisions, but we are very much against that way of thinking. We think that we should make decisions as close to people as possible. We have uh, right now we had a big uh, uh, reform in the counties and the municipalities. So so um, uh, decision makers like lo on the local and the regional level are now uh, far further away from the people that they represent. And uh, when this happens over time, I think it eventually leads to the centralization of where money is being invested and where services are being placed and where workplaces are. And uh, it will lead to centralization of people. So it will lead to the countryside being a uh, less attractive place to, to live and, uh, and, um, and moving people into the cities. And that's also uh, one of the main reasons why we are opposed to a Norwegian membership of the EU because uh, we believe that it's it's um, impossible for for a central governmental organ in the EU to be a good um, decision makers for people locally and that a lot of decisions are being made without really uh, having a connection to how they will how it will affect people like in their everyday lives because that's what it's all about. Yes, yeah, so that's, that's it in a nutshell. I, and I thought why don't we just dive into the whole question of the EU right away, because obviously that ties quite uh, neatly into what you're saying about um, being focused a lot on uh, on local um, democracy and local empowerment. So obviously the, the question around the EU uh, has been big in Norway, and you're one of few countries that have voted uh, not to join in a subsequent referendums. So can you just explain why you think it's a good thing that Norway isn't part of the European Union and um, how you'd like to see Norway's relationship with both the EU, but also the single market um, going forward. What's what's the center party's vision there? Yeah, so the short answer is that we, we believe that we need uh, Norwegian control over our resources and that, like I said, decisions should be made close to people so that the Norwegian storting or the Norwegian parliament uh, should hold power uh, over decisions that affects Norway. And uh, we believe that the EU is, um, it's, it's a centralization of, of power that we don't believe 
That's right. So right now we are tied to the EU uh, via the EEA agreements that you are probably all familiar with. I think that it's important, of course, to have a relationship with other countries. And uh, we uh, also, we need to have a, a trade uh, agreement and a trade relationship with the EU and, and other countries in the world. But we we have a, a stronger belief in bilateral agreements than, uh, than agreements that we have now that where the power is transitioned from our national governmental bodies and to um, the central governmental bodies in the EU and where the EU laws that we don't really control at all uh, come in and uh, stand above our national laws uh, in a very to a very great uh, extent right now uh, anyways we had the, a referendum uh, over EU we have actually had two but the last one was in 1994, uh, like you mentioned, uh, where uh, the center party was very well known as a as a no party, and um, uh, in the after that we joined the, the EEA agreement uh, instead of being a full member of the EU. But the the whole agreement and the the, the membership for Norway in this uh, agreement, I mean, it's grown to to be much um, larger and much more. Um, interfering in our national policies than it was um, me well, meant to be. So you'd like yes. to change that if possible, I guess, to renegotiate parts of it? Yes, the Centre Party believes that we should uh, explore other options to have a relationship with the EU. And, uh, and we also have a trade agreement, actually, that would, <laughs> if we were to, to leave the EEA agreement, that would uh, come into power. Uh, so... We have a foundation, but we we uh, we don't. I mean, we don't believe that we should like uh, uh, like uh, exclude ourselves from the EEA without any other options and just be like an isolated country in the north. I think that's a very um, common misconception. But we believe that we should renegotiate the agreement and that we need to be tied to the rest of the world uh, in a in a bilateral way without the. Uh, all the transition of power that we are experiencing now. So I thought now we've discussed, you know, current um, politics in Norway. As I said in my introduction, uh, the Centre Party is doing really well at the moment. Uh, I guess you're doing well and the two sort of major parties aren't doing so well if you look at their historic levels of support. So I just thought sort of what's in the last two, three months is it that's um, that's working for the Centre Party? Are there any specific issues or campaigns that are being successful? Um, is there anything in the news that's prompting this? Uh, or do you see more sort of a long-term um, trend? I would definitely say that this is a long-term trend. Um, we've, uh, just to give you the context, we have now had a conservative government for seven years. And uh, center part, the Centre Party has, uh, uh, I mean, we're in the op opposition and our main critique um, against the current government is that they have passed a lot of um, reforms and uh, general policies that, that will lead to centralization in the country. And uh, this is like, for example, we've, they have issued a, a large police reform that has uh, you, uh, removed police or like made uh, the police uh, less locally present and more centralized into the bigger cities. Um, 
we have uh, seen uh, they have passed uh, reforms for the municipality and the county structure where they have merged uh, a lot of the municipalities and counties and all of, and uh, there are several other examples but the point is that all of these or many of these things have been against the uh, general uh, view in the population i mean there has been great uh, resistance towards uh, all these uh, changes um, and people feel like they are overruled and not listened to and uh, eventually we've we've seen a great centralization of uh, of uh, power uh, where because decisions are now made like further from people and um, and also of um, services because um, a lot of uh, uh, services like like the tax office <laughs> offices have been centralized uh, from like uh, being locally present to uh, being in cities far, further away from people and um, this is uh, yeah services are further away it's uh, also means that uh, there are uh, less uh, places for people to work uh, all over the country so like our general um, like I said our general values is that we need to like build the country so that People can live all over the country and have um, have services like the police, hospitals, uh, like that. We need to, uh, to to make sure that there are uh, places to work. Otherwise, people obviously can't live uh, in the countryside. So, so this is like this is these are this has been a trend over uh, years, and um, I feel like we have a countryside uh, uproar. And I think it's it might some people may think it sounds silly, but it's actually it's i think it's uh sums up really <laughs> what's happening really well so i guess as you said norway has had a, a conservative or like a center-right i guess we in europe alexis terminology government of the center-right for quite some time as you said uh, the center party's in opposition but if you look at the center party's history you've previously supported center-right governments in the past you're obviously, it's in the name, you're in the center of politics. As it stands currently, are you firmly on the left side of Norwegian politics? Um, is it sort of determined already that you'll um, support if, you know, if the election goes that way, a government led by Labour Party in the next election? Is that sort of set in stone or will you wait until you see the result and then negotiate after that, if that makes sense. What's the center party's sort of stance on the issue of government ahead of the elections next year? I think uh, you are very right. We have traditionally been going both ways. Um, I just need to say that in my view, we have more a right government now than the center right, because the party, the, the conservatives, uh, they, are, they are the the biggest party in governments and also I mean all the politics that are being uh, being uh, passed by them are in my view uh, going quite right uh, anyways uh, I think um, traditionally we can uh, we have been going both ways but in this like in the context that we're standing right now it would be very difficult for us to to um, cooperate with the conservatives after the election uh, because we have been the main uh, voice against all the uh, all of their uh, legislation and uh, all of their reforms and all of the whole like ideology that they have been passing over the country right now. So I think where we stand now, it's not like 
it's not possible after this election, but maybe sometime in the future, there'll be a difference. And uh, when it comes to the Labour Party, I think what's interesting right now, like I don't, I, I, uh, I feel very strongly that I uh, campaign now for, uh, for a strong centre party and that we want to, we need to grow as much as we can because we, we now, I mean, the centre of Norwegian politics is now quite big because like in the last poll, uh, we were actually the biggest party of all. And uh, I think that it's just important for us to try to grow as, as big as possible and then, and then we'll see how, um, how a new government will look. I guess I should just say for the listeners that the, the, the upcoming elections in Norway will take, take place in uh, mid-September 2021. So still nine months to go in politics. That's a, that's a long time. Lots of long things time, can yeah. happen. Um, yeah. But for the moment, it's looking very good for the, the center party. So thank you so much, um, Emily, for speaking to Europe and giving us all that context. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the EuropeLX podcast. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review for us. Also, to stay up to date with European politics, make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, all of them. You can find us also at EuropeLX.eu um, and at EuropeLX across all those social media platforms, except for Instagram, that is, because there it's at Europe underscore Lex. Thank you very much and see you next time. You've been listening to the EuropeLex podcast hosted by Ewan Healy and Gabriel Hedengren. The managing editor was Polychronus Karimpoulos. The producer and audio engineers were Rafael Peñorios and Leon Lizana. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, Matthew Nicholson, Jorgos Kakouris and Guillaume Ferreira de Sender. The music was by Jose Alvarado. And everything we do couldn't be possible without our fantastic supporters on Patreon. Yeah, anyway, that's the that's the theme tune.